listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series through the book of Genesis. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 25, as we look at the fifth day of creation. And if you don't mind, would you stand with me while we read this passage together? Genesis chapter 1, beginning in verse 20. It reads as follows, it says, And God said, Let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. And so God created the great creatures of the sea, and every living and moving thing which is with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number. And fill the water and the seas, and let the birds increase upon the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. <clears throat> Let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, I ask tonight as we continue to look at the account of your creative majesty and power, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would give us insight and understandings that would help us as we seek to pursue you in this world that you made and placed us in. We ask for that wisdom and that grace in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <coughs> Excuse me. As you read that, maybe it didn't really stand out to you, but I want to point out something that's pretty significant in this passage. In the previous four days, the accounts of the previous four days of the creation, all of the creative acts of God are described as follows. It says, let there be... And that's that, this Hebrew word hayah, which means to become or come to pass or exist or happen. In other words, it's almost a picture of God saying, okay, let it take place. But it's interesting that from in verse 20 and again in 21 and finally again in verse 26, it says, God created, and it's the word bara. And it means always is used in the scriptures in terms of God as the creator. And what I'm trying to do is create a, a distinction here that I think is important. Because we find in the book of Genesis that the word bara or to create by the, or God's creation only appears four times in the entire book of Genesis. The first time was in the very first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So it's this, this basically summary statement of everything that's going to follow, that God is the creator. But in verse 21, he says, God created every living creature that moves. In verse 27, he says, and God created man in his own image. And then again, in God's image, he created him Male and female, he created them. And later on, chapter 5, again, when he's going through the first genealogical record of Genesis, he says, in the day that God created man, he made him in God's likeness. In other words, the word bara as referring to God as the creator, but specifically, it only uses it in the terms of creating what we would call living things. And there's a distinction made here because we've previously talked about the creation of the plant world. And we, in our language, in our conversation today, often refer to plants as being living things. But, and they are in a certain sense, but there's a distinction that the Bible makes that modern science doesn't. And it's, I think, notable. Because it's always limited to things that have a soul, like animals and like people. Now, you may say, why in the world does that distinction even matter? Well, 
it's really God making a, 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 an emphasis in the text that matters because when we talk about something being a living creature or having a soul, it's the Hebrew word nefesh, which means a, a living being, but it implies that there is a spiritual and immaterial dimension to this being that doesn't exist in anything else. You may have a pet rock, but you don't pet it. You know, I mean, you, you, you may have a, a, a plant that you in, enjoy looking at it, even smelling. Maybe it creates a fragrance. But I've never heard anybody, at least anybody with all of their marbles, refer to a plant as being their pet plant. Put a leash on it and take it for a walk. It, we don't have that kind of relational dynamic. And so when we look at this idea of something being a living creature, it's not something that has just been brought into being as the previous statement, hala means to, or implies that haya, that you've been, there's a living being or essence that's been created. But the idea here is instead that this is something that has identity. This is something that we would have not just being a thing, but being something. So that he says in addition to that these living creatures move in the earth. In other words, they have not only a mobility, but it's a personal mobility. It's a self-directed capacity to move from one place to another that only living entities possess. And in that idea of having direction and having self-direction or movement is the idea that there is self-awareness something which plants and rocks don't have. Now, I may be making a point that you feel like, why is he emphasizing this? Well, I don't want to admit that I couldn't think of anything significant to say, so I just made this up. No. The simple fact is that this is important distinction to make when we enter into the conversation about what is living and what is not, and how do we relate to the world around us. Because what the text is telling us is that although plants animals and mankind are all referred to as living things and they are always and they are composed of basically the same organic matter they are not the same and in a moment you'll see that that's a novel idea in today's world because animals and humans possess something that we refer to and scripture often refers to as nefesh or a soul there's soul life beginning to be scribed here. That non-material capacity to have consciousness, or we might add to it the idea of self-awareness. That we don't, when we look at a plant, a plant isn't looking back at us, and a plant never gazes upon his own navel and wonder why he was made this way. A plant never looks back on his, his seedling days and say, if I'd only been planted in different soil, at least as far as we can tell. And yet, there is a, that distinction is not something that is readily embraced within the scientific community. Because plants, contrary to a lot of pop pseudoscience, are not aware of their own existence. They, they don't have feelings. And a tree doesn't cry or whimper because you carved your initials in its bark. And yet there was a whole movement not too many years ago of people saying, well, you know, they respond to our vibrations. And we had people who were talking to their houseplants because they felt that they played loving and kind and, and gentle music around them and talked graciously to them. They would actually respond and flourish as a consequence. 
And yet the truth of the matter is they respond best if they're watered and get plenty of sunlight. But the reality is how, what kind of music you're playing or how you feel about them or the vibes that you put off aren't going to make things grow. Despite that, there's a hard cider commercial, I think, that says they respond. Angry cider, whatever it is. But even a commercial like that, if you're familiar with it, and if you're not, that's okay. You're, you're not getting enough TV time, but that's okay. But it, even a commercial like that is, is, is based upon this concept that many people believe that the plant world is really only a notch or two below the animal world according to the evolutionary scale. But unlike man and unlike animals, plants are incapable of expressing and having relationship with either themselves or anybody else. So that what that means is doesn't mean that I'm not going to imply that, that animals are equivalent to plant, uh, people because they have a soul, but rather because we'll see later on we'll, in the next section we'll get into, we'll talk about how that man possesses not just simply a soul, but there's a, a, a de degree of what we call self-determination or self-will that, that the animal kingdom doesn't possess. But basically what we find is that even animals have this life force in them. And we might sit back and say, why would God refer to the animals as being living creatures or literally living nefesh, as living souls? And the answer may be supplied in chapter 2 of the book of Genesis. Because in verse 18, and I have to admit, I hadn't really even thought about this until today. But he says, the Lord God said... It is not good for man to be alone. And I've taught this so many times, and I, I would usually read that and say, therefore, he says in the next verse, I will create a helpmeet for him, and that's why God created woman. But before he created woman, he created animals. It says, in fact, in verse 18, I will make him a helper suitable for him. And then it says, out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal every bird and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and what are the man called every living creature that was its name in other words the purpose of the animal kingdom was actually initially not so that we could eat them but rather that we might have companionship with them and that's where we find again this unique dynamic you and I can actually develop very close relationships or companionship relationships with animals. That's why we have domesticated all kinds of animals throughout human history, and they can have this pet relationship. Now, if that's the only relationships you need in your life, you probably also need therapy because it can't meet all of the needs in your life. But nonetheless, there is something winsome in the relationship between owners of pets and the pets that they own, at least in most cases. But the point that I think is more important than just the companionship dynamic here is this also tells us that creature life is more than just a chemical reaction caused by the conjunction of matter and energy long ago in the primordial ooze. But rather, it, and life itself cannot simply be explained by its material properties. That creature life, as we call it, 
is spiritual. It's a spiritual life. It's a dynamic that results in a divine animation of life. And yet, as I said before, when we talk about the creation of man, there's an added dimension to mankind that we don't see in the animal kingdom. Now, as I said, why is this something that's even worth taking the time to point out? And the answer is basically because of the theory of evolution, which posits basically that you and I are evolved from the planet kingdom. Now, granted, I have known people who have the personality of a potted plant, but I, I, I don't believe that I have any generational connection, no matter how many billions of years you want to add to the, to the formula, that somehow makes us the result of the animal kingdom. But when you look at evolutionary theory, they have a progression of how life began on the earth. And they begin with the oceans being the source of all life. And out of it came these marine organisms. They may have been single-celled organisms or less, but they, they started as this marine life. And I, I remember having my profs explain to me when I was in college that the reason you enjoy sitting by the ocean and listening to the waves crash and the reason it's so relaxing is it's your primordial, primordial heritage calling out to you. <laughs> and I just, and I thought, okay, I... And many people believe that. That's why we relate to it. And so they teach that life began in the oceans. They began in the sea, and they began as marine life. And what followed was plant life. Out of marine life came plant life, and out of plant life came insects and amphibians and reptiles and not so finally, they came the mammal kingdom and then the bird kingdom. And last of all came man, which is still to be continued, which is something I'll explain in a moment. In evolution, the process still continues. In other words, that mankind has reached this point in his evolutionary journey, but he is still in process of evolving so that when we have these movies like X-Men or Transformers or these kind of cyborg things and all these different kind of so-called science fiction perspectives on life, the basis of that is the idea that we are still on this evolutionary trajectory and they don't have even time to get into it, but what that has created is an entire religious philosophy which will claim that it has its foundation in science, or at least in evolutionary science. So that man is evolving and we need to continue to evolve. That even within, for example, the, the, uh, the gay community, there are many who say, well, becoming a homosexual is part of that progression of moving to higher levels of evolution. There are people who are in positions of power and leadership in the world who simply say, we have a right to rule and govern over the earth because we have evolved past the rest of our society and the rest of the societies and cultures and peoples of the world. And all of this becomes the justification for oftentimes what we would just simply call a dictatorship of the powerful. And it's shocking when you begin to really look into it and find out how this is an underlayment to a whole lot of philosophical positions and justifications. Because oftentimes, 
Those who are in positions of elite power look at people like you and me and say, the reason why you believe the Bible, the reason you believe in a creator God is because you just haven't evolved to those higher levels of understanding and insight. We used to relegate that to the realm of the swamis and the, and the mystics, but now it's really coming into the positions of people who are in power, and I can't help but believe that eventually it will become part of that whole composite of what we call one world religion. Of course, we find that the Bible tells a completely different story. It tells us that the plants came before anything else came, anything living came, came plants. And that there was no direct connection between the life of a plant and the life of an animal. In fact, plants came first, and then the next day, God creates the marine creatures and the birds. And then finally, we find on the fifth day, it, we, we see the proliferation of other animal life, insects, amphibians, reptiles, mammals, and lastly, and we would say biblically, finally comes the creation of man. And even though that may not stand out to you as being significant, the fact that man is put at the end of the creative process and that man is identified as being distinct because he is given a soul and given life, and the fact that he says it is finished declares simply that we are the apex and the final point of his creative plan. There isn't any further development of life forms beyond man himself. And to believe that puts you in direct opposition to the philosophical underpinnings of the culture. Now, let's understand that when we talk about what, what most people believe, most people don't really know exactly what they believe. They will express things. They will say things like, well, plants have feelings and, and, and not have any idea that that has no basis, any kind of reality. But when you believe something that's wrong, it does affect how you, you operate in life. In fact, I tried to convince my wife that plants have feelings and that's why I don't, shouldn't cut the lawn. <laughs> I'm injuring their, their direction. I'm, I'm hindering their development. But even in a more serious way, we find that people are being literally layered with all sorts of ideas that they think are factual and true, and most importantly, they're scientifically proven. When, a, when you dig into a lot of this stuff, you find that it's not proven anywhere, that they start with this assumption and they build out upon it, as we'll see in a moment when we talk about dinosaurs and how do we know that dinosaurs were 65 million years ago before they, or 65 million years ago they went extinct? How do we know that? Well, we know it because science has proven it, right? And that's why as I was reading various articles dealing with all this stuff, they would, they would look at something they could not explain and immediately they would go, but we know that that can't be true because the dinosaurs went extinct 65 million years ago. And that's just stated over and over and over again as just a fact and therefore we don't discuss these anomalies or these things that we can't explain or that don't fit into the model because we've decided already it's impossible for dinosaurs to be on the planet Earth less than 65 million years ago. Even though in many cases we're looking at evidence that completely contradicts that. And it's interesting how they work around that. 
You see, about the only thing that creationism and evolutionism really agree on is that man is at the end of the, what they call the taxonomical list. But where they do differ is that evolution says, but he's still in the process of evolving, and so is all of the creatures and everything in the planets and the universe. And the Bible says, no, man was the end of it. Where we also disagree is simply this, and this becomes a logical conclusion. If man is, as we know mankind today, is simply still on a trajectory towards evolutionary, uh, well, I wouldn't even say perfection, because there's no ultimate goal. Because when you get into people talking about UFOs and extraterrestrial life, there are a lot of people who feel that extraterrestrials are, are nothing else but evolved beings like ourselves who have simply evolved beyond us. And so we have movies that come out talking about having communication with these uh, people or these beings from outer space, and they have to spend all this time trying to how to understand and discern and relate. And I think if these guys are so smart, why can't they just say it in English? Why do we have to go through all these Why don't they just say, hey, Dunderhead, we want you to... I mean, when you sit down and start thinking about it, he's saying it would make the movie about 10 seconds long. These space aliens showed up and they show, said to us, hey, we got your back. Pew, they're gone, you know? The movie's over. But instead, they drag out this whole thing of this interaction and these things are going places and people talking about being caught up and being probed, and I think that's a whole other psychological issue. But the whole thing, that this whole dynamic, and what I'm saying is people are really basing a lot of the way they live their life on those kind of presuppositions. When the Bible says something very different, and this becomes the real objection to the biblical account of creation, because what the Bible simply says is, you as mankind is a representative of mankind, were the apex of God's creation. That you are the central feature of his creation. In other words, everything that we see in this world was created for us. To create an environment and a place where man could live and thrive and worship and glorify God. That we are the final movement of God in the creation of life in this vast universe that we're part of. But that's when somebody will say, oh yeah, well, what about dinosaurs? Doesn't that kind of blow your whole theory out of the water? Good question. What about dinosaurs? It's interesting that the oldest books of the Bible, Job and Genesis, most people don't realize that Job is actually probably the oldest book in the Bible. The Job and Genesis three times or excuse me, several times used three different references to creatures that might fit into the category of what we call dinosaurs. You know, the word dinosaur was a 20, early 19th century uh, creation. It means terrible lizard. In other words, they found these massive bones and, and uh, said, if these things were alive, this would be scary stuff. They were terrible lizards. But we find that, for example, in, in a in this passage that we just read here in verse 21, it says that God created the great creatures of the sea. The word in Hebrew is tanin, these, these, these massive tanin. 
And that's variously translated in various versions of the scriptures around the world as being serpents, as being dragons, as being monsters. In other words, when you look at a fossilized Tyrannosaurus rex, when you see the, the, the fossil in the Museum of Natural History, you look at that and say, this is a monstrous creature. I mean, if you don't believe that, you never saw Jurassic Park 1, 2, 3, all right? That's the whole idea, especially one. That, that, that kept me awake for nights. But, you know, the, the idea that this is a terrible, terrible creature, and that's essentially what the word tanin actually refers to. So that what happens is whenever we read the Bible, you know what you and I do, we try to relate the words to the world that we know. And so we find that uh, people throughout history would say, well, what is the Tanin? What do we see as a terrible culture? Well, maybe it's an elephant, or maybe it's a hippopotamus, or maybe it's a rhinoceros. We pick, or they say it's a sea creature, so maybe it's the whale. We pick whatever we know and say that is what it is. But it makes me wonder if, in fact, Job wasn't referring to something in the category of what we would call the terrible lizard. Again, Job uses another word. He talks about Leviathan. Five times the word Leviathan appears in the text, not only in Job, but in places like Isaiah, where in Job he says, can you pull Leviathan with a fish hook or tie down his tongue with a rope? Well, almost every creature that we know that might be described in modern terms or as being Leviathan can be pulled up with a hook and can have its mouth tied with a rope. So I've read places where people said, well, he's talking about, you know, crocodiles and alligators. And, you know, <laughs> there's a lot of alligator and crocodile shoes available in the market today. Can you do these things? Yes, you can. If you don't believe it, watch uh, alligator hunter shows on, 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 on TV. They're, they're killing him all the time. But Isaiah says something interesting. He describes Leviathan as that gliding serpent, Leviathan the coiling, ser coiling serpent. He will slay the monster of the sea. So the Leviathan in Isaiah's terminology is some monstrous creature. And then finally Job uses the word behemoth. He says in Job 40, look at the behemoth, which I made along with you and which feeds on grass like an ox, what strength he has in his loins, what power in the muscles of his belly, his tail sways like a cedar, the sinews of his thigh are close-knit, his bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rod of iron. You know, that's could be a fit description of a dinosaur as well. But in saying all this, and this is where the real objection comes, it implies that dinosaurs are contemporaneous creatures. In other words, that they didn't go extinct during the Mesozoic and the, the uh, Jurassic era some 140 million years ago. And you're going to ask me, are you expecting me to believe that maybe within living history there have been such creatures wandering upon the face of the earth? Yeah. You see, because the assumption that everything, all these creatures disappeared 65 million years ago has been undercut on a number of levels. First of all, we need to understand that radiometric dating doesn't date the fossil, it dates the rocks the fossils are in. 
So how do you know the age of a fossil by the dating of the rock in which it's found? And we've talked about the questionable aspects of radiometric dating based upon assumptions and calculations. But you have to keep in mind, we don't know that this bone is 65 million years of age. In fact, there are a lot of things that happen in our world that we don't have explanations for. For example, there have been at least three or four different incidences where manufactured metal products have been found in coal deposits, hundreds of feet underground. In other words, as men began to excavate coal in England and in Pennsylvania, they have uncovered in one place a brass alloy bell. How did it get there? Or there was a, a, a aluminum alloy made in a way that we don't use alloys that indicates some kind of advanced technology found in, in, uh, in uh, Pennsylvania in a piece, or excuse me, in England in a piece of coal that was fashioned like the tooth of a gear to some kind of interlocking machinery buried deep in the coal. How did it get there? Well, I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Coal fairies. <laughs> coal fairies are, are doing this just to mess with our heads. But people say, well, you know, dinosaurs were these massive creatures and maybe they died in the flood because they, they couldn't get through the front door. Um, here, and we'll, we'll talk more about uh, all the animals on the ark when we get to that portion of Genesis, but the average size of a dinosaur might surprise you. The average storage, in other words, when you take the largest dinosaur and you take the smallest dinosaur, is the size of a modern-day horse. That's the average size. They weren't all these massive creatures, despite the fact that you saw it in living color on Jurassic Park. They weren't these, these massive creatures across the board. In fact, there, many of them were very small, like small marsupials, in fact. Of course, some dinosaurs were large, <laughs> some of them weighing as much as 80 tons and standing 40 feet high. Still, again, the, the, the size of the average dinosaur was about the size of a small horse. But maybe more to the point is, is it possible that dinosaurs actually still exist today? Well, again, we talk about the descendants of the dinosaurs that are amongst today. In fact, there's about 13 different species of animals that, we, that science often acknowledges as being descendants directly of the dinosaurs, whether we're talking about things like anteaters or platypus, uh, duck-billed platypus or, or even the shark or caimans, which is a, a, you know, like a form of alligator. We know that they are descended directly from ancient creatures, and they haven't evolved beyond where they are at. And you know why? what the explanation is given? Because they don't need to. They're already very efficient. And I'm thinking to myself, if I weigh 80 tons and I'm 40 feet tall, I think I'm pretty efficient too. You know, you ask, where, do you, where does that guy stand? Any place he wants to. But even more to the point, over the years, there have been a number of discoveries of fish and animals that were believed to be extinct, that we know they existed in ancient, in prehistoric times because we have the fossil examples of them, only to discover living examples of them, identical with their fossil forebears, 
but they were supposed to have gone extinct 30 or 60 or 100 million years ago. Take, for, for example, the solacanth, which is basically we call it the armored fish. Um, they're an ancient order of fish. We have a lot of uh, 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 contemporary fossil, or fossil remains from ancient times, uh, go, dating back to what's called the Crustaceous period, um, which is about 65 million years ago. And they were believed to be uh, prehistoric and, and dated to be contemporary with the dinosaurs until 1938 when uh, one was caught off the coast of uh, the east coast of South Africa. And you see a picture of them examining this fish, which was no longer supposed to exist. I don't know whether they ate it or not, but nonetheless. Or there's what's called the uh, Monito del Monte, which is uh, this little tiny marsupial, which is supposed to have gone extinct some 11 million years ago until one was discovered in the jungle in Chile, uh, living in the bamboos, in the bamboo forest near the, the Andes. Uh, there are new cases of fossils, for example, the things like uh, graftolites, which supposedly went extinct 300 million years ago, and yet these are, this is the fossil evidence, but now they found them in the deep ocean. They found examples of graftolites. And one of the interesting things is, how do these fossils from deep in the ocean that survive beyond our ability to know until recent times, how do they find these fossils on mountaintops? Interesting. There's what's called the Tuatara, which is supposedly went extinct also in the Crustaceous period until it was found living in New Zealand. And they only had fossil records before, but now they find they're walking the planet. Uh, there, basically, there's things called the, what's called the Lepidos Caris Crustacean, which passed away in the Devonian area. The, there's conifer trees that are supposed to have been extinct some 20 million years ago, and now they've been found growing in, in far-flung forests. The list kind of goes on and on, even something as familiar as the trilobite. Remember the trilobite fossils when I was a kid? These were the, the coolest things to get if you could possibly find them, and they were clearly distinct until they found some still crawling around the ocean bed. You see, the point is that it's possible that many of these creatures, even large ones, are still living. For example, in April 1977, there was a Japanese fishing trawler was fishing off the coast of New Zealand, and they snagged something large about a thousand feet down, and they brought it up, and what they found was a carcass that looks very similar to Pliosaurus. Um, the saddest thing, but I understand why they did it, is that they didn't keep it and bring it to land because one, it stank, they said, really, really bad, and the, and the, the captain of the ship said, I, the only place we can keep it is in the hold with the fish that we've caught, and that would destroy the catch. And so after they had taken photographs of it, they threw it off the side of the ship. Poor man wasn't a very good scientist because it would have been more valuable <laughs> than a lifetime of fish catches. Uh, but unfortunately, he, he didn't have that perspective and he missed out on a tremendous opportunity. But this thing that they found was 33 feet long it weighed 4,000 pounds in its decayed condition. 
And to this day, it doesn't match anything that we know of living creatures, but it lived at an extremely deep level in the ocean and looks remarkably close to a pliosaurus that we do have fossil remains from and know existed. But I think even more fascinating is the discovery of soft tissue in dinosaur fossils. Now you have to understand, if something died 65 million years ago, pretty much anything that's a soft tissue is going to have to kind of dried up and be gone. But when they found a, a bone of a Tyrannosaurus rex in Montana near here, and they found evidence of blood tissue, hemoglobin, that had not decayed but was still surviving, suddenly they're furiously trying to come up to an explanation. How did it get there? And eventually they said, maybe we should just call it something else. But basically, it's blood tissue. And then they come up with, well, there was a unique condition of the soil that helped to preserve it. And they have these long, lengthy explanations that explain how could blood tissue survive 65 plus million years in the ground? And the answer is, you, it can't. It just simply cannot happen. Or there's the discovery of a dinosaur brain. Now, my wife said, how do they know that's a brain? That just looks like a rock. And I said, that was my first impression as well. But even what these you know, non-Christian secular scientists simply said, that they can see all the menges, of the, the evidence that this was a, the tissue of a brain, it's hardened into a, a rock form. But here again comes the question. The brain is soft tissue. And so... <laughs> How does it survive even in this form? And they have this whole theory about how that something about the acidity and the way it died and the position it was in, and therefore the brain, literally, this is their term, the brain became pickled. And that's why, even though it's a semi-soft tissue now, we still have it today. Or there is the squid fossil that was found uh, with the ink in it. And it's interesting, they found the ink sac in this fossil that the ink, of course, was dried, but they were able to identify it. And here's what they said. I mean, I'm, this is not a Christian article. This was a non-Christian scientist saying this. The ancient ink's similarity to modern squid ink suggests this defensive weapon hasn't evolved much since the Jurassic period prehistoric time. I thought, in other words, we're going we're gonna to hold on to this idea that this has to be millions of years age, even though we're looking at this and saying, you know, apparently the squid hasn't evolved much since his prehistoric times, and neither has the ink that it squirts out for its defensive purposes. Well, Again, if you, if you follow the, the arguments of evolution, you realize that all of these things really run so completely counter to the assumptions and the basis until you begin to realize that there is this a priori prejudice, this, this before the fact, before you even look at the facts, you've already made up your mind what the facts are going to say to you. 
You know, it's the kind of thing that we try not to do in life. We try not to pass judgment on people based upon the way it looks. We want to give everybody a chance to kind of represent themselves and say, well, this is my side of the story. And most of us understand that every story has more than one side. There's my side, your side, and the truth somewhere in between, right? And the simple fact is that we try to let the facts direct us to the conclusions, and yet we find increasingly when the facts say, maybe the assumptions are incorrect. Maybe dinosaur life is not as old as is assumed. And yet, as I said over and over again, every article I read on this subject always came to the same conclusion regardless of what they found. They said the first thing is, we know that the dinosaurs were extinct by 65 million years ago. Therefore, even though, and therefore, what looks to be like this could not possibly be the case. And it's like the old adage, don't confuse me with the facts. I've already made up my mind. We live in a challenging time, you and I, because even in our parents' era, it was feasible and considered at least respectable to say, well, I just don't buy the evolutionary view of life. But today it has progressed to the point where it's such a politically and theologically connected concept that if you say that, you're viewed as being as old as the dinosaurs, at least in your thinking. And so as a consequence, you can become vilified, and even many within the scientific community dare not express their feelings about or questions about evolution because they will be uh, basically disbarred from every institution. They will be denied their opportunity to have graduate degrees and doctorate degrees and, and tenure and all of those kind of things. They'll, they'll basically be held back and, and, and even rejected from many institutions for holding such ridiculous, thoughtless ideas. And that's why I think that it's so critically important. Why I think it's so diabolical is because if we can't believe the biblical account, then suddenly the dominoes begin to topple and we're finding we don't believe Matthew and we don't believe Revelation. We don't believe he created and we don't believe he's coming back. Because if he isn't the one he said he was in Genesis, then he's not the one he promises to come back in the book of Revelation. And suddenly we, as Paul said, you end up making shipwreck of your faith. So I have to just commend many of you who have just hung in here through all of this stuff that I've been flinging at you week in and week out. Uh, kudos to you. Uh, but it's, I appreciate the fact that you recognize the importance of knowing these things that we become informed people to the place where we understand that what is often the assumption is not necessarily what is factual. And that assumption can be based on a prior judgment and prior programming and prior preparation of education and so forth, but not upon simply saying, but maybe that's not true. Maybe that's not the case. But these become theologies and philosophies in opposition and the reason I say it's diabolical is because I believe that Satan's effort is to destroy our confidence in the Bible and to do everything he can to get people to believe that they are not the apple of God's eye, 
that they aren't the heart of his creation, the purpose of this world that we live in. That, in other words, as many people in the, in the climate change uh, arena today are saying, they really wish that people would kind of go away so that Mother Earth could find her full identity. I remember the former, the founding president and former president of uh, Greenpeace uh, speaking at, at a forum in, in London uh, made, made such an interesting pronouncement when he was coming out against climate change. And he said, he says, with regards to Greenpeace, he said, when you talk about the board of directors of Greenpeace, and he says, I say this as a former president of Greenpeace, uh, I was the only scientist on the board. None of these guys are scientists. And he says, I saw how it changed from being about, you know, preserving the earth to basically the elimination of man as the cancer that's destroying the earth. And he said, these people hate people. And where does that come out? That comes out of the pits of hell. Because we have these two diametric views. The one view who says, man is the problem. And the other one says, man is the purpose. You're the purpose of this world that we live in. And when I realize that I am the purpose of the world that's been created and that I live in, then I suddenly realize that there is a purpose behind my life. And that purpose is to know the God who created me and to serve him accordingly. And that's really what's going on here, I believe, is it's an effort to diminish man's view of himself so that he will forsake his God-created purpose. Isn't it interesting that Paul makes this argument in, in 1 Corinthians 12 how that every one of us is important? That in the church in particular, he says every one of us are, are, are part of the body of Christ. And we go all the way back to Genesis where we're not just part of the body of Christ, but every person who exists on the planet is created with that particular image of God. And when we get to the next day of the creation, we'll talk about how that idea of us being made in the image of God makes us unique and distinct from the animal kingdom and what that phrase actually means. But it's so important thing for us to understand that that God has not only made every individual, or excuse me, mankind unique, but he's also, as Paul said, made every one of us unique and has designed a purpose for our life. That personally, I believe that whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, that God has created you for a specific role in this world. But you could never fulfill that until you meet Jesus. And one of the things that, that I feel is one of my, my responsibilities is do everything I can to enable people who have come to Christ to understand that place and that role and to believe for themselves that they have this special calling from God, that they have been uniquely designed. I, I think there's more than, there's a lot of reason why every fingerprint is unique, every DNA strand is unique, every, everything that we see about you and the world around us has this unique quality that separates it from every other one that ever came. That every person who has been born into the world, we know at this point, is a unique prototype of themselves and that there will never be anybody exactly like you. Oh, there may be people who bear certain resemblances to you, but you are unique. And that's what gives value and dignity. Because what is the thing we say that what's, how do we value things? We value them by how unique and rare they are. 
You know what makes you unique, makes me unique? is because I am the only one of me that has ever lived and will ever live upon this planet. Given a role and a passage and a journey that it is my duty to live in a way that I'm seeking to know what that is and to follow that all the days of my life. Is it any wonder that the more nihilistic people come, the more we discover that they believe that their life doesn't have that uniqueness? That they're simply an animalistic reproduction of some previous plant life that accidentally became them? Is that surprising that a person who believes that that's who they are, that they, they look in the mirror and say, what difference does it make whether I live or die? This is very personal to me because before I came to Christ, that's exactly where I was at. I remember very obviously just sitting there and, and just kind of doing the philosophical math in my head and just simply saying, what difference does it make if I live or I die? Being a thorough evolutionist, I knew that my being there was just this total random act and there was no greater purpose or greater goal beyond the satiating of whatever pleasure button I'd pushed re most recently. So that if guys like philosophers like Peter Singer say the, the chief aim of man is simply to do that which makes him feel the best. After a while, not being alive is what feels best because you just get tired of the same old, same old. And I remember sitting there <laughs> going, wait a minute, I'm 19 years of age. If I lived to 50, which at that time seemed to me to be just incredibly old, but if I lived to be 50, what difference does that make? What does another 31 years do? How does that change anything? And then I die and I'm forgotten and I go to dust and it's like I was never here. What difference does it make? And then we wonder, why have people become so nihilistic? Why have people become so, so pessimistic? Why do people become so self-absorbed on one hand and despondent on the other? And the answer is because Satan has robbed from them the very heart and soul of their existence by reducing them nothing out to nothing else but something that has evolved into what they accidentally happen to be at this moment in time. And I remember the day I asked Jesus into my heart, that moment that I gave my life to Christ, I knew I had a purpose. Without even intellectually working it out, I knew that my existence had meaning and purpose. There was a uniqueness to my existence that on one hand separated me from everybody else and yet at the same time connected me to everybody else in the same way that my right arm is connected to my left arm because they're created for a functioning purpose. For us to understand that and to, to be able to know that that's what's missing in our contemporary culture is any valuative property to their existence. And that's when we talk about the hope of the gospel and we put it in the context of my hope is that if I make it through, I'll die and go to heaven and then it'll be all over. And I go, made it through. No, the hope is bigger than that. The hope is that my life has hopefulness at its foundation. 
that my life is, is created by God and, and designed by God. And, and there's a, a destination that God is going to enable me to reach. And there's a journey and there's a path that I'm going to follow. And it's not so much knowing physically or materially what the path is or worrying about, am I on the right path at this moment? But understanding that God has created a pathway that by His grace and His Spirit, He's going to take me down to fulfill some purpose that I probably will never fully grasp in this life. But one day when I'm in the presence of God, I'll look back and it'll all be so clear and it'll probably be so much different than I imagined. And we'll be able to see that for every single being that has ever lived upon the earth. The only difference is there will be those who surrendered their life to Jesus and therefore were enveloped in that purpose even when they didn't know it. You had those moments, haven't you? You go through a season and you wonder, where are you, God, and why are you doing this, and what's the purpose of this, and this has no value, and I don't... And you go on and on and on, and suddenly you come to the end at some moment where he takes you from the deepest, darkest valley and lets you get to the top of the hilltop, and the, suddenly you look out on the panorama of all those events that have been taking place and suddenly go, oh, darn, I get it now. And God does that in... in I say he does it infrequently. He does it in our life at times when we need it. But at the same time, he wants us to continue to walk that trail. Knowing that one day it's going to lead to the fulfillment of what he has purposed for your life. You can only truly live that if you believe what the says. <laughs> if you reject this, you, you know, then you're left being just a better smelling version of primordial ooze. Maybe. <laughs> I have my moments. Okay, I'll quit. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would help us to grasp the things that um, are so much bigger than us. I, I think about David who said such thoughts are too wonderful for me. That in some ways there are truths that so... Uh, go beyond, so beyond the ability of the mind to grasp that we have only one choice but to accept them by faith or reject them by unbelief. Lord, we choose to believe that you created us. And I thank you that we live in a time and an era where scientific inquiry and research and also communication is able to show us that there are evidences to believe that your word is true. We thank you for that. We trust you for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen.